Coming at you from the Wee Dessert Studio in Houston, Texas. You're listening to The Weekly Brew with Austin Statton, Kevin Cook, and Jeremy Paxton. It's time to sit back, relax, and be informed. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to get through this thing called life. Oh no, let's go! Welcome to episode 40 of the Weekly Brew Podcast. My name is Austin Statton. I'm joined this week by Kevin Cook and Jeremy Paxson. Dolores Lozano will join us here in just a few minutes. Uh, But guys, we have a pretty fun episode on deck. We've got interviews with Jonathan Fagan, who covers uh, the Rockets here in Houston for the Chronicle. We've also got an interview with Michael Quinn Sullivan, who's going to discuss a little bit on the political spectrum. So it's the first time that we've really touched on politics here in the past few episodes. But uh, guys, how has the week been for you? It has been a very eventful week. The storm damage obviously has affected a lot of people in the Houston area. I'm sure even if you're not from Houston, you've been reading about some of the stuff that's happening. So I went out to uh, a high school that was hit by a tornado and witnessed them cleaning up about $3 million worth of damage in three days to get the school ready to go. That was Klein Collins High School, and that was um, it was interesting. So I did some hard news reporting this week, and it turns out I can do that too. So my, uh, my theory that I'm capable of writing anything uh, anytime turns out maybe to have been correct. So you're going to jump into like investigative journalism next or what's the next step for you? I just feel like uh, I should be assigned anything and everything. I mean, I, I could do it all. I'm like the uh, the Swiss Army knife of journalism. So I'm very proud of myself this week for sure. Once you get over your lack of confidence, Kevin, I think you're going to be okay. That's the only thing holding me back. <laughs> Jeremy, what about you? Uh, I had a great week except for the deluge that beset our great city. Um, I was uh, really impressed and really proud of the way that not only our city stepped up, but a lot of private citizens stepped up um, when the disaster hit here on Monday. Um, I was really uh, just shocked by how much water was dumped on the Houston area, and I'm, I'm extremely thankful to have not been flooded in my home. But, um, of course, our hearts go out to anyone who did suffer any kind of damage from the flood. Um, other than that, I mean, my week was great. Uh, I took a stop by We Desserts, and I picked up some of their delicious chocolate toffee cookies. I'm a chocolate cookie connoisseur, so I know what I'm talking about. They're really good. Um, I'm actually going to get some tomorrow and enjoy them for the premiere of Game of Thrones Season 6, which, if you're not watching it, you should be. Um, really excited about that, but uh, We Desserts is just, it's it goes along perfect with, with, with whatever you're doing. It will certainly go along perfect with anything you have planned tomorrow. You know, it's interesting. They just added those cookies this week, and uh, they've had some reports, people coming back saying that the cookies changed their lives, that they were a game changer. So everybody has a response to these chocolate toffee cookies. I myself have tried a great number of them, actually, far too many, and um, they're delicious. Certainly go by there. But they also are now doing root beer floats. So if you've ever seen, I don't know, Back to the Future, you know, uh, or any movie about the 50s, like the most delicious thing featured in those movies about the 50s were always the root beer floats, homemade vanilla ice cream with A&W root beer. It's a delicious blast from the past. That's not in the text that they wrote for me. I'm just saying that it's uh, it's certainly wonderful, and you should go out and try it this week. So We Desserts, O-U-I Desserts, 3411 Kirby. They have uh, a multitude of websites and Instagrams and social medias and things of that nature. So look them up for sure because they're wonderful people. Penny and Jen uh, behind the counter there. Tell them we sent you, and uh, you'll get 10% off of your order and uh, and just become part of our family. That's, that's another way to interact with us and become part of our podcasting family here is to drop by We Desserts and uh, spend some time on their free internet, have some of their delicious coffee, homemade uh, root beer floats, and just enjoy yourself there. Yeah, definitely go check them out, 3411. Also, you can wish Jen a belated happy birthday. And another tragic thing that happened this past week is Prince passed away at the age of 57 on Thursday. And uh, I know we had a group thread going, just kind of uh, discussing you know, how he was one of the greatest living performers. Uh, what were your thoughts on uh, Prince's passing? Well, you know, I'm a, I'm a big Prince fan, and uh, I've certainly enjoyed his music over the years and his personality character his uh you know uh, showmanship all of that delightful so sorry to see him go but um you know i was always reminded of a funny story from a comedian will anderson uh who does the podcast tofop and fofop you guys should certainly look up will anderson and fofop if you are not aware of those podcasts but um he would always tell a story about going to prince's concert and you know prince had uh, so many hits over the years you know charting hits uh you know uh, platinum albums things of that nature so he would start out his concert every time with, uh, he'd sit down at a piano and he'd play like eight or ten bars from one of his songs uh, that was really well known and people would cheer and then he'd just stop and shake his head and go, ah, I got too many hits, too many hits. And then he'd just go and play another one. He'd, he'd play about 20 or 30 songs in the span of about 15 minutes before he'd actually launch into his concert proper, which is just sort of a testament to the effect that he had on the music industry and, and performance. And I think he'll be sorely missed. Um, of course, a lot of people know Prince best from the Charlie Murphy story on uh, The Chappelle Show, which is another one of my favorites. And I've, uh, I've been watching that sort of uh, as a tribute to, to Prince. Um, Dave Chappelle playing the 
purple uh, bloused uh, baller Prince. So he will definitely be missed. And I've been listening to some Prince music and, and everywhere I've been this week, including that uh, Rockets game Thursday, they were bumping lots of Prince in memory of the performer. Yeah, I know. I, I'm this the whole thing this week, and this Prince just went way too too soon. Um, of course, the circumstances of his death are still under investigation, but uh, certainly he had quite a bit of talent left in him. Um, of course, you know, for I think segments of my generation, I know me personally, I was not introduced to Prince um, until the Dave Chappelle skit made a huge impact on me. And uh, sort of introduced me to the artist who uh, I came around later and actually figured out I liked his music. So, um, you know, kudos to Dave Chappelle for doing such um, a hilarious impersonation of him that actually got people interested in Prince's music. And of course, um, for you Prince fans out there, you know that one of his last album covers (laughs) featured Dave Chappelle dressed up in that purple blouse suit as Prince um, in his Breakfast Can Wait album. So, of course, uh, another artist that Dave Chappelle impersonated to pass away was Rick James. So, um, but uh, the whole thing is just so sad to me. Um, of course, if, for, if you're a Prince fan, you know that there are thousands of unreleased tracks that Prince has in his vault. Um, he was quite a perfectionist when it came to his work, and so I wonder, following his death, if some of these unreleased tracks will make it out to his fans. So um, that'll all be really interesting to watch um, as time goes on. I think uh, Prince is probably one of the greatest living artists, as already mentioned, but another uh, great performer... Uh, that I enjoy is Justin Timberlake, and he uh, put out a statement right after uh, Prince had passed away, and he said that Prince was more than a once-in-a-lifetime artist, that he was just a once-in-a-forever artist. He also said that, uh, quote, they say don't meet your idols, they let you down, but some of the greatest, funniest, yes, he was hilarious, most prolific encounters and conversations about music came from the moments that I spent with him. It would be silly to say that he's inspired our music. It's beyond that. He's somewhere within every song I've ever written. So obviously, in terms of the musical perspective, Prince has uh, you know, definitely impacted several artists. Uh, and I think that's kind of cool to see the impact uh, that someone like him has had. Uh, but Kevin, uh, you wanted to, to mention something else. Is that right? Well, at first I thought you were going to tell me that Justin Timberlake died and I was about to be absolutely crushed because first of all, I hadn't heard anything about that. And, and I think that uh, you went in a different direction there. But the way you led up to it sounded like you were going to say that. But no, China, uh, my dad pointed out to me uh, Thursday at the Rockets game, he said, you know, China got Farrah Fawcett and I had to sort of mentally recollect back to what exactly that meant. Of course, Farrah Fawcett died the same day Michael Jackson died and um, her death was completely obscured by the death of Michael Jackson. In a similar fashion, the wrestler China, um, whose real name, I suppose, is Joan Lohrer. I'm not a big wrestling fan. I think you guys know that. She um, actually died earlier in the day and of course her death was completely obscured by Prince's passing. But I'm reading the CNN article. uh, China also appeared in TV magazines, music videos, and adult films. Uh, Her 2001 autobiography, If They Only Knew, describes her as part feminist, part superhero and says, China blazed a trail where no woman had gone before. I'd just like to point out, that's her autobiography. (laughs) So her autobiography describes herself as a part feminist, part superhero who blazed a trail where no woman has gone before. But still very sad uh, that she passed, and I think she was a trailblazing figure for some. Um, And uh, it's just important to note that she passed away as well for those fans of pro wrestling, which I know there are lots of them out there, even though I don't understand it. Definitely an interesting week with everything that transpired here in Houston and then uh, the big news at the end of the week. Um, uh, but Kevin, a uh, great article on Klein Collins. And again, you can follow his work on Twitter at Cook. And if you would like to uh, follow our work, we definitely encourage you to search Weekly Brewcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and now YouTube. Uh, we have some great interviews up there as well. Also, you can go to weeklybrewcast.com and each week we post all of our podcast rundowns there on Monday mornings. But But as always, we have a packed show on deck, so it's time to sit back, relax, and be informed. You're listening to The Weekly Brew. Now joining us on The Weekly Brew is Jonathan Fagan, who has been the Rockets beat reporter for the Houston Chronicle since 1998. Now for our listeners, we want to let you know that we are recording this segment prior to Game 4 of the series. And Jonathan, thanks for joining us this week on the podcast. And the Rockets edged the Warriors Thursday night, 97-96, after a last-second jumper by James Harden. You wrote in Friday's paper that, quote, just as they had said they wanted, the Rockets went ugly and they made it beautiful. Are the Rockets just delaying the inevitable, or has this team found a little bit of life? No, they're probably delaying the inevitable. Uh, <laughs> we're talking, they're playing a 73-win team, and the Rockets are what they are. They, they didn't change that by basically stealing a win. They won on a night they shot 39%. They played really hard, and they had the determination that they wanted and that they talked about and that they had lacked in games one and two. But that doesn't change what we've seen for six months, 
which was the Warriors were one of the best teams ever in the NBA, and the Rockets were roughly in the top 15 or so, 16, 17 in the NBA this season. <laughs> if, if the Rockets won this series, it would probably be, well, take away probably, it would be the biggest upset in NBA history. It, I mean, just numbers don't lie when you are, like the coaches say you are what your record says you are. They're a 73-win team. The Rockets are a 41-win team. It would be one of the biggest upsets in sports history. So I think one of the questions is, what are they playing for? And in this case, I think they're playing for um, basically auditioning for free agents, showing them this is a place that you can come and be successful if you're courting a Kevin Durant or an Al Horford type, something like that. And so I'm wondering if you are, Jonathan, a prospective free agent in the NBA and you're looking at this team, do you see positives, negatives? Did they do anything to improve that stock last night? Well, first of all, that's not what they're playing for at all. I mean, not even a consideration. Um, no, nobody plays to try and get somebody here to take their job away. Uh, so that that's not it. Uh, but, yeah, I, 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 you know, if the image, I think, does matter in that, for, for instance, in the past, when, when they got Dwight Howard, who was the top guy, you know, the top prospect in the league, uh, uh, free agent, they were a team on the rise. The, you know, back when they got Trevor Ariza the first time, there were some teams that really wanted him. Uh, Cleveland, LeBron James came after him. But the Rockets were viewed as a team on the rise. They had just had a real good playoff series against the Lakers, and he was with that Laker championship team. He viewed the Rockets in a certain way. It, the Rockets, I suppose, if they do well enough in this series, they could create an image of themselves as the regular season was fraudulent, the issues we saw were, were temporary, let me look into them if I'm a top free agent. They could accomplish that, but that is in no way what players want to do. That's not why they're in, in this. Michael Beasley has made a significant impact with the Rockets, and last week we spoke with M.K. Bauer about the Rockets picking up team option for Beasley. What are your thoughts on Michael Beasley's playing time in the series? Do you think J.B. should give him some more time? What are your thoughts on that? Well, he's been very up and down. As always, he's a good scorer. He was completely lost on some possessions defensively in Oakland. And so, it, you know, it, it, it's kind of like the Rockets' season. Whatever they try works, and then it fails. Nothing has been successful consistently. So Josh Smith comes out, and he hits three threes in the first half, looks real good. When he comes back in, he has three consecutive just terrible possessions. Janatis Motiunas has given what – they want. They want someone to be a ball mover, which obviously that starting group really needs. They want someone to make Draymond Green stay at home and defend his guy, especially if it's in the low post. But Donatus Motiuna has missed a ton of shots in those first two games. Beasley is a scorer, and he is a gifted scorer. He didn't shoot real well in those games, but with him, you always you know he will. But mm-hmm. there's obviously other shortcomings, and so whatever the they have tried hasn't worked consistently enough not to try something else that doesn't mean you shelve any of those guys but yeah, i could definitely see why you say all right let's let's look at this for a little bit the other thing he's been doing is he wants to start not as motionis for the reasons he's described and i was i just said i think he likes having josh smith on the floor with james harden and michael beasley on the floor when james is sitting because beasley more than just about anybody else besides Harden can get his own shot, can create shots for himself. So that's a good fit in those four to six minutes in the first half that James sits. Then you see how it goes and kind of determine which of the backup fours to play after that. So you take a look at Josh and Beasley in the first half and make a decision from there. You know, he trusted Beasley down the stretch last night. So you can definitely play your way onto the floor because he is giving guys that chance. There was a lasting image for me at the end of the game on Thursday night, and that was the Rockets bench after James Harden hit that go-ahead jumper uh, late there in the game. It seems like the Rockets this year, they've just been so dysfunctional when it comes to team chemistry. They've obviously underachieved. What do you think that image says you know, about the work that needs to be done moving into 2016 and 2017 for this team to not just slip into the playoffs, but you know, make an impact? That image, as you take it, consider it, weigh it, and look forward, means absolutely nothing. This is arguably the stupidest controversy I have ever heard. 
just shocking. Well, no, it's not shocking, actually. It's completely predictable. But that means absolutely nothing. And you know what it means? It means the Rockets had a bad year. It means that people are looking for reasons to explain that. And it means we're in the playoffs where everything gets blown up completely out of all proportion, whether it's Russell Westbrook likes to dance before the opening tip and (laughs) Charlie Villanueva doesn't want him to, or the Rockets didn't, uh, you know, put it this way. When the Rockets did celebrate baskets, you know, late baskets, does that mean they were team harmony and everybody's all in it and it's great and what a, what a great group, a great group chemistry. No, of course not. You don't look at an image of how guys celebrate or don't celebrate and ignore everything you've ever seen all year. It did not mean anything about how they – James Harden didn't celebrate. I'm fairly – in fact, he sort of pushed Donatus Motiunas, who did want to celebrate. He kind of pushed him away. I don't want to celebrate. I'm pretty sure James Harden doesn't have issues with James Harden and that James Harden wasn't disappointed <laughs> that James Harden hit the shot. Damn, James, why did I hit that? No, <laughs> James Harden did not celebrate, you know, and made a point not to. The one thing it does tell us, the Rockets nearly threw the game away 10 seconds earlier. They, the 10 seconds. They knew that they couldn't celebrate yet because they only had to remember that for a time span of 10 seconds. They knew. If they had celebrated, if they had danced around, especially if Dwight Howard had been goofy, big, silly Dwight, and the Warriors hit the shot to win it, how badly would the Rockets have been ripped today for celebrating prematurely? That's a very good point. You know, Dwight especially, that would have been the number one topic. Last year, the Clippers were ripped for celebrating prematurely, and they had a 19-point lead at the time. But they lost the game. Now, they also had a full quarter, not 2.7 seconds left. But they lost the game, and so they got ripped for what they did. When you lose the game, you get ripped for what you did. The Rockets have lost 41 games this year, plus the two in the playoffs. They get ripped for what they do or don't do because that's the season they've had. Charles Barkley is never shy with his opinions. And, yes, um, during during halftime for game three, he said um, on air, ain't nothing worse than fake hustle. I guarantee you the Rockets are going to lose the game. And then they won. What are your thoughts on Charles's, Charles Barkley? And does he have something against the Rockets? Yeah, of course. He has a lot against the Rockets, and he's never hidden that. He's been very open about it. He believes Leslie Alexander owes him $9 million. Uh, you know, and he, he has flat out said that, that he took the big pay cut to, or it might be $6 million. I'm forgetting the numbers. But he took the big pay cut to create the cap room to bring in Scottie Pippen. He thought he was going to get the the exact contract that he had the previous year in his next contract. He didn't get as much. He dislikes the Rockets, and he's very open about it. This isn't, you know, a sensitive look into what he really thinks. This is what he has said. He has an issue with the Rockets. More than that, he is one of those ex-players that – doesn't like the non-players taking over management of the league. And Daryl Morey is sort of the symbol of that. He doesn't know Daryl. You know, you know, he talks about Daryl's way of doing things, but that's just not accurate. That's not right. He talks about analytics, and it's like using the wrong word. That's not what analytics are. You know, you might as well be talking about peaches and, and describe lobster. <laughs> You know, it's just, it's a word. He doesn't know what it is, or maybe he does, but in making his argument, he ignores what it is. And yes, he has an issue with the Rockets, which he has been very public and open about. Charles is like one of the best guys you'll ever know, but he is an entertainer, and he is a great entertainer, I think. I think he's really funny and quick and clever, but that's what it is. No one should ever take what is said on that show as more than TV. You know, nobody takes the Kardashians seriously. It's a TV show. That's what this is. It's a TV show, and he's really, really good at it. So when he was saying it's fake hustle, first of all, there's nothing wrong with fake hustle if there's real hustle, too. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. As long as you bring the real stuff. They happened in this occasion to bring the real stuff. But just like our conversation about the video of the non-reaction, the non-celebration, 
People are looking for reasons to explain Rocket's disappointing season. That was his explanation, lack of real hustle. I don't think he was right. I think there was the real hustle in game three. There should have been game one and two. The real determination to do whatever it takes to leave bruised, to, to win the 50-50 ball, get on the floor. That, that didn't happen in game one and two, and it should have. It was happening in game three, but the narrative is how you do television. You sort of build a narrative, and you, you debate it and keep it going. That's good television. That show is great television. And so Charles went with it. So I'm curious about the uh, coaching hunt here. Obviously, Scotty Brooks uh, signed with the Wizards. Head coach Thibodeau go to uh, the Timberwolves, and so those are two guys that I heard, you know, were being bandied about as coaching prospects. Um, obviously, I have been very vocal about loving Jeff Van Gundy and hoping that he's a pick there. Um, do you have any insight into what the uh, coaching search is going to be like? What JB's position is? What they're ultimately thinking at this point, and who we might expect to see at the helm next season? As far as Tom. Tom picked the job he wanted most. You know, that was not here. It wouldn't have mattered if the Rockets didn't make the playoffs and they got interviews. He made his choice. They, he would have waited for this if this is what he preferred. So they didn't lose him. They never got him. They never had a chance to get him. They were never in the game for him. Scott Brooks would have got an interview here. He was not – again, they didn't lose him. They were not – he was on the list. You know, the and – his agent very wisely kind of used that possibility to get it done in Washington. Uh, he would have been a guy considered. And with Scott Brooks, don't, he doesn't deliver Kevin Durant. Kevin Durant would not void him in any way, no, uh, not at all. But he's not, that's my guy. I'm going where he goes. That's not true. And I don't think anybody kind of is saying it that way either. So, yeah, Jeff is absolutely going to be a candidate because he wants to be, and Daryl thinks a lot of him. It remains to be seen what Leslie Alexander, the only opinion that matters, what he will think. I do know, Leslie has told me, and I have written, that he will want a 2016 offense. You know, pace, spacing, three-point shooting, spacing, more spacing. That's what he will want. And, of course, every coach wants spacing, but – the pace and three-point shooting as a way to get it, Jeff will have to convince Leslie that he's ready to deliver that. Well, how much do you think coaching really matters in this league anyway? Because you see like LeBron with Blatt and Lou over the course of the season, they get the first seed in the East, Kerr's out for 43 games, Luke Walton takes over. I mean, what, what appreciable impact does coaching make? Because it has some, but I wonder to what extent a coach can alter you know, the way a franchise uh, plays on the court. You know, it, in one respect, it's overrated. And I mean this only, only, I can't emphasize that enough, in that they're all really good. And so the difference between what you get in the course of one game, you know, it's, it's about the guys. You know, it's sort of like people always want the manager to go up to the hitter and say, you know, double to right center. Well, it doesn't work that way. So we're like people want, let's get the ball into Dwight more. Oh, good idea. Maybe at like two feet. The coach gets to say, just do that. Put the ball in, you know, to Dwight Howard at two feet from the basket. Oh, done. It's, and so it's still, it's a player's league. That's the cliche, but that's what they deal with a lot. But a coach does sort of in time help establish the culture, the mindset, the priorities. You know, if you look at San Antonio, as everybody always does, it didn't happen the first day Pop took over. It, it took time, but they, he, there is now a culture there, and it's, it's perfect. No interim, for example, you look here, no interim coach go, replacing during the season a Hall of Famer is going to establish a culture. It's, <laughs> it's all he can do to plug the leaks before the ship sinks because there were so many. Uh, but that's what a coach can do over time. These are our priorities. This is what we work on. This is how we think. You give the right coach enough time, you can get some of that done. You know, that's what Tom's going to bring to Minnesota, where they're going to work and be detail-oriented, tremendously detail-oriented. That will bring up those young talents. But it wouldn't matter unless you had the young talent. Then you look at George Carl, a great coach. He had no chance in Sacramento. No, but he's a great coach. There's just no question about it. No chance. It's just so coaching in some circumstances isn't the point. Uh, you know, and, and that's a great example. 
you know, it's amazing he got even what he did out of that group. I, the stuff I could tell you, <laughs> I mean, just a horrible situation. But he can't change. He can't come in and change people in, in a few months. You allude to young talent, and so obviously that's what's on everyone's mind. Kevin Durant is the big name. I'm not holding out for Kevin Durant, and I haven't seen any indications he's coming here, but there are a lot of other names out there. I mean, who do you think uh, are players in the league that uh, the Rockets should be pursuing or that you know of that they are pursuing? Yeah, it's a little early on that. We do know, of course, that they're going to take a run at Durant, but it's a little early. For instance, what happens with the Hawks? Is Horford completely unavailable, or is he looking around? Does he want to consider his option? He'd be terrific. But, you know, it's way too soon to know what, what's going to happen with their season or his mindset. You know, we do know Ryan Anderson's not going to be in the playoffs. Uh, he certainly would not be quite as expensive as an Al Harford. It would fit great, but he doesn't change your life either when you land him. Um, it's a little early because we don't know what any of the free agents that are in the playoffs, how their seasons will go and where their thinking will be. All right, again, we have Jonathan Fagan joining us on the Weekly Brew podcast this week, and I don't think there's anybody else in Houston that knows as much as the Rockets and you know is as plugged in with the franchise as Jonathan. Again, he's covered the team for the past 18 years for the Houston Chronicle. And uh, Jonathan, we definitely appreciate you taking the time and joining us on the podcast this week. And for those that are interested in following your work on Cron.com or following your work online on social media, where can they find you? Well, on Twitter... Uh... I can be at Jonathan underscore Fagan, which is F-E-I-G-E-N. That's on Twitter. And uh, cron.com, as you mentioned, or my Facebook, my public Facebook page has everything, including the premium stories. So you can kind of get around that wall if you're foolishly not a subscriber. <laughs> and if you are smart enough to subscribe, you probably already know that all the premium stories, which are the you know, the rewritten game stories after the locker room and all the daily stuff, all the analysis, all that kind of stuff goes on the premium site, which is HoustonChronicle.com. And I will say I do tweet the links to that pretty much every day, so you can get it that way too. Yeah. But, yeah, the Twitter handle is probably a good, good start, Jonathan underscore Fagan or the Facebook page. So make sure to go give Jonathan a follow on his Twitter account and also uh, like his Facebook page. He puts out great content, so if you like Rockets basketball, he's the guy to go to. Jonathan, we appreciate it. It's my pleasure. You're listening to The Weekly Brew. Now joining us on The Weekly Brew is Michael Quinn Sullivan, the president of Empower Texans and Texans for Fiscal Responsibility. Michael, we appreciate you taking the time to join us on this week's show. And for those that aren't familiar with your work, some have called you the most powerful non-elected political figure in Texas. Can you give our listeners kind of a brief run-through of your duties with Empower Texans and Texans for Fiscal Responsibility? Sure. I, I had the organization, um, our uh, primary focus is in making sure Texans are informed. We want more citizens being engaged in the process of their own government. Um, you know, when, when when you hear kind of these weird uh, things applied, you know, powerful, all those things, what? The power is supposed to be with the citizens. The people are supposed to be the ones who are powerful in our form of government. Uh, the elected officials are supposed to be the servants. And it's important for each of us as citizens to first remember that. Then we can uh, start telling the politicians that. But you and I have to remember that we're supposed to be in charge. We're the ones that are founding documents uh, uh, that places the sovereignty in our republic. Um, and so that's what our organization tries to do, is to make sure citizens have the tools they need, the information they need to be engaged and active as citizens. Speaking of elections and, you know, the power being with the people, uh, I, I can't uh, not think of the the primaries that are kind of um, overhead of us right now. What do you think of uh, the Republican nomination process uh, up to this point? And um, what do you think the prospect of a contested convention means for, for the Republican Party's chances in November? Well, you know, the the process is the process. The rules are the rules. And I, you know, I, I've been scratching my head listening to the, uh, the faux controversy over the past uh, you know, month or so about the, the rules for selecting delegates in the process. Look, you know, I may not like how many yards out from the uh, field goal the kicker stands to kick the ball for the extra point, but those are the rules. And everyone who picks up a football and goes out onto the field uh, knows from day one of any particular season what the rules are. Any activity or endeavor, you know, I would love to drive on the left-hand side of the road. But guess what? That's not the rules of the road. And the list goes on of all the ways in which we have to 
know the rules to participate in our activities. So the the, the process is the process. And you know, I think a lot of the controversy is, is really faux controversy. It's trying to create controversy rather than, uh, rather than being a real problem. Um, you know, going into the convention, um, I, I actually kind of like the idea of a, convest, of a contested convention. I think that we need a vigorous debate ideas. I think it's, it is bad for us as a, whether as a party or as a people, when we just kind of look at everything as being, you know, oh, it's a done deal and I don't need to engage or worry about it. No, again, the citizens, you and I should engage and should be worried about it. You know, we should have this vigorous discussion about what does not only our, does a, a political party look like, but more importantly, what does our country look like? You know, what are the policies that we want to pursue? Elections are not supposed to be popularity contests. Elections are not supposed to be um, you know, about teams, you know, the elephant team versus the donkey team. Elections are supposed to be about determining the policies that will uh, move our nation forward, move our states forward, move our cities and our schools um, you know, into the future. That, that's what elections are supposed to be about. So when we have the prospect of a contested election, what I hear is, oh, goody, we get to have more discussions. <laughs> you know, that's a good thing for us. You know, it's interesting. Trump has been a, a divisive figure in this uh, in this election. He sort of has been accused of being a natural extension of the Republican Party's rhetoric over the past, you know, 10, 15 years. He has sort of an odd relationship to Republicans. You yourself have said he's not much of a Republican. I think you've accused him of being a liberal. And yet he seems to have taken a lot of popularity from um, ideologies that seem Republican, you know, like uh, states' rights and, and keeping foreigners out, things like that. When you look at Trump, I mean, do you see reflections of the most negative parts of the Republican Party? And do you find uh, the, that the Republican Party needs to sort of step back from that kind of rhetoric? Well, what I see in Donald Trump is someone who, um, who, who is, the, is the gross mischaracterization of what uh, Donald Trump is what the political left would like to assume um, conservatives are. Now, Donald Trump is not a conservative. Donald Trump is a guy who says he likes big government. Donald Trump is the guy who is okay with, um, you know, the you know, anyone, you know, let, you know, let the, uh, the guy walk into the bathroom with my daughter, you know, I mean, just, you know, go, go down the line. Um, you know, Donald Trump is not a conservative, um, either on fiscal issues, on governance issues. I mean, goodness, even on capitalism, he's not a conservative. He's a guy who believes that government should be able to go through and take property from private citizens to give it to other private citizens. Donald Trump is no more of a conservative than Barack Obama or Hillary Clinton. You know, he is a xenophobe, or at least he's currently playing the role of xenophobe, but xenophobia is not a conservative position. Remember, it was the Democrats who pushed the, um, the, the strict uh, border controls and strict things. Now, yes, there's an element of that with national security and protection, but you know, xenophobia crosses political boundaries in every nation. <laughs> you know, it, it is sadly a, you know, um, you know, one of the flaws in the human condition. Um, but that, you know, but that Donald Trump is out um, you know, trying to to claim the mantle of he's the he's the embodiment of conservatives is just flat out absurd. Um, he has yet to receive more than about thirty seven percent of the vote, I guess, except for New York where he got sixty percent of the vote. But that was three hundred and seventy five thousand votes. More people voted in Wisconsin Republican primary than voted in the New York State Republican primary. You know, so it's a you know just a, it's a different different world. Um, I think though that what we do need to uh, what, what Donald Trump does kind of highlight is the need for us to to do have a, a good open discussion of what does it mean to be a conservative? Does it just mean the loudest brashest guy who say, who can say the most radical things, or um, are there are there actually a series of principles and policy outcomes that that we desire? That's where hopefully uh, we end up, regardless of what happens with Donald Trump. Hopefully all of us as citizens end up do having that conversation with each other. Now, kind of looking at the Democratic side, you've got you know Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton. Uh, Bernie seems to be closing in some of the national polls, but is still falling uh, far behind when it comes to the delegate counts particularly with the superdelegates. But both of those candidates are polling significantly ahead of the Republicans when it comes to the national election. Uh, What do you make of the Democratic race right now? And it it looks like from the outsider's perspective that it's going to be almost like an easy win when it comes into November, just because the Republican Party is, you know, in in such a disarray and such shambles right now. Well, you know, it's always easy in, 
you know, in, in April to presume what November is going to look like. You know, um, you know, it was absolutely assured that Jimmy Carter was going to win re-election in 1980. Um, it was absolutely assured that you know, Gerald Ford would hang on for four more years. And we, you know, we, we always make assumptions. Of, we look at the now and we assume the now is going to be the forever. Um, that's a that's a that's a uh, an overarching problem of humanity, but it's also a problem um, in politics, where where we look at today's polls and go, oh well, gosh, what's always going to be? Yeah, it's not. Um, no, things change, and um, you know, and, uh, um, and and as we get closer to the fall, that's when I think we'll start seeing seeing better kind of polling. Um, but for now, um, you know, when we look at the Democratic contest, what, what I would say that both Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders. Uh, kind of had in common, um, and where you see kind of this unifying force in the, uh, you know, within the, you know, the, the general population, is people are really tired of the insider. But, you know, now, I would argue Donald Trump is the consummate insider, but again, perception being different from reality. Um, you know, remember, Jeb Bush was absolutely assured um, nine months ago of being the Republican nominee. Every single commentator, every single political science, every pollster, everyone was absolutely certain that Jeb Bush would be the Republican nominee. So I always have to take a grain of salt, you know, with all the what all the smart people think <laughs> you know, of who's going to be the uh, uh, who's going to win whatever particular election because humanity, the voters, have a strange way of having their having their own ideas. But I think the um, the, the tide of you know, Ted Cruz. Marco Rubio, Donald Trump, uh, Bernie Sanders, are all people who are who are uh, perceived, some real, some not real, as being outside of the of kind of the governing elite, whether it's the Republicans or the Democrats, and that's something that should be sending a loud signal to other um, aspirants to um, to public office or folks who are in office wanting something higher or just wanting to hold on to their seat that maybe. The population is yearning um, for a change in the um, in, in in the way the governing um, servants approach their position. You know, it's interesting you speak to the principles of what it means to be a conservative. I'm curious about what your opinion of that is, because from an outside perspective, looking in, at times it seems like the loudest voices are clamoring for things like um, restricting trans bathroom rights or, or disenfranchising gay couples. Or, you know, there's a lot of, of really vocal social issues that I think um, hardline conservatives uh, are, are on a certain side of. But I wonder, is that what's most important to conservatives? Is that what it means to be a conservative? Well, again, I mean, I think that's a, that's the discussion that we need to have. We need to have that conversation of where do we prioritize things. Um, but very often, uh, what happens if you you start to have the discussion and people say, "Oh no, in polite company, we don't talk about that. Let's not have that debate today." And unfortunately, it's you know, it's, you know, when you've got a boiling pot of water, you can hold that lid on top of the boiling pot of water for a while. But then when you pull it off, you know, eventually, eventually the lid will come off. It eventually will blow off. Um, that's just you know, physics. And I think the same is true with political discussions. Until we have the, the robust debate, until we have the, the opportunity for people to, to, to figure out that, to come to a consensus on, on where these various issues fall, where these, um, what, what should in this time be more important. Um, but we don't solve that by, by wanting to silence the debate and silence conversation because then you truly end up with just you know people get more and more pent up and so they scream and they yell. When they feel like they're not being heard in a rational conversation is when people start yelling and screaming. Uh, we, we need to make sure that in our body politic we have the opportunity rather than the, than the squelching of ideas and the squelching of questions as being, you know, whatever – um, you, know, you call it political correctness. You can call it whatever you want, but you know, at the uh, at the end of the day, we need to allow the conversations. Uh, but when we don't allow the conversations, there's this kind of bully mentality from either side, um, you know, coming in on any particular issue that you know, tries to silence debate, silence discussion. Uh, when that happens, the, um, the folks on both sides end up being louder and brasher and. Uh, you're kind of out, uh, outsizing the uh, the issue. 
Well, let me ask you another way then. Why is it so important to conservatives that their uh, moral or ethical or religious values are sort of legislated onto other people, whether you talk about access to health care for women, abortion, gay marriage, things like that? Why is it why does it seem to be such a touchstone for conservatives and particularly the Republican Party that these issues be legislated, you know, and, and I guess freedoms be restricted ultimately, because that seems to be antithetical to what the Republican Party would ostensibly be about? Well, remember, all law is moral. There is no such thing as an amoral law. All law uh, is, is rooted in morality. The question is whose morality is it going to be rooted in? Um, you, know, you cannot have a you know, law that is not rooted in central morality. Law is the codification of morality. That's why you can't steal. Why do your morals uh, prevent me from walking to your home and taking your TV set? That's, that's your moral construct. In my moral construct, I should be allowed to walk into your home and take your TV set. We, but we have those laws in place. So, so now, so, so again, that's where we had this vibrant discussion. Well, come on, Sullivan, that's unreasonable. Okay, we'll explain what you're doing. Let's have that discussion. Um, you know, so I think that when we look at it, it is ironic to me. It's sad, disgusting, horrible, evil. Um, but you know, there is still so much in our culture we have to work out as we kind of walk through the ideas of you know, the, you know, the trans rights. Well, how do you define that? Because on the day that Target announced this past week that they were going to allow uh, folks, regardless of their biological sex, to choose which bathroom they went to based on their, um, you know, on, the, on their preferences, um, on the same day that was announced by the corporate in California, police arrested a 30-year-old man dressed as uh, wearing a Barbie wig and a Barbie outfit um, in a Target store uh, for taking pictures of women going to the bathroom. Okay, so you know, so h- how do we how do we figure that out? How do we how do we stop that? What are the ways? You know, I mean, there's all these questions that have to be. It's not as glib as saying, "Oh well, gosh, everyone will do the right thing." Look, if people were angels, you wouldn't need laws anyway. Um, such where I think we have to we have to allow for this discussion, to allow for kind of figuring out these laws. So when when you hear the conservatives. You know, it's easy to tell with conservatives make this such a priority. Well, so does the left. You know, so do the sort of the liberals make it such a priority too. Um, you know, it's just that it's. Uh, uh, so I think that's where we all have to step back and ask, well, what are we trying to achieve? How, how do we how do we get to the place where folks can where all folks can be accommodated? That's the uh, that's the challenge in our in our system that requires robust participation. Michael, kind of shifting our focus a little bit from uh, national politics to state politics, which is kind of your specialty. Um, what are some of the biggest things uh, in your mind um, that are on the agenda for Texas voters going into here next session? Uh, what are the what are the things that Empower Texas is working on? Well, certainly, uh, you know, Texas has made great strides the past 25 years of not being an oil and gas based economy. Um, the Texas economy was an agrarian com- uh, economy for a long time, and we, our you know, uh, state fortunes, as it were, rose and fell with cotton, you know, and rose and fell with a drought. Uh, we then suddenly found this black gooey stuff under the ground, and then we shifted all of our all of our hopes and dreams in oil and gas. And that you know, sometimes pays off, sometimes it doesn't. Um, over the past 20 or so years, Texas has done a fantastic job. Um, the Texas economy, Texas people have diversified. Um, in every in every way you can imagine, diversifying we diversified, um, and in particular in our economy. So while oil and gas now is only about thirty percent of the of the state economy, thirty um, percent is still important. Take away thirty percent of anything you have, and you recognize you are missing something. Um, so going to this next legislative session with oil and gas being lower than it's been, uh, that's going to uh, raise questions for lawmakers. What can we afford? What's the you know, what, what can the people of Texas afford? So that's that's obviously going to to uh, you know, span every issue. Whether talking about public education, talking about healthcare, um, law enforcement, go down the line. Um, and you know, tied into that are you know, as we seek to encourage businesses uh, again. And you know, we we as Texans like to puff out our chest and talk about what a you know, real believers we are in free markets and free economy, and you can come to Texas and pursue your dreams. And yet, Texas is the most regulated state um, in the nation in terms of licensing. Uh, if you want to thread eyebrows, you have to do 750 hours, or at least up until recently, 750 hours of, um, of a certification to be a beautician 
even though none of those 750 hours had anything to do with eyebrow threading. Um, by comparison, you could be a paramedic for only 150 hours of training. So we do some weird things with licensing that make it hard, particularly uh, for low-income folks, for immigrants who, um, who are coming in and wanting to lay brick, wanting to um, you know, be electricians, you know, all sorts of um, you know, jobs that we currently license. We need to rethink that. We need to take a look at you know, what, what are we serving? Are we serving kind of the incumbent interest or are we serving you know, the interest of the economy, the interest of individuals, people? So that's going to, think, going to be a, a big question coming up this next session. And lastly, public education. You know, education is, is always, um, always the big issue this next session. We expect to see a couple of uh, big cases coming out of the state Supreme Court. They're due to be coming out this fall dealing with the way we fund public education. We have this legal fight every about 10 years and always results in some sort of legislative change. Um, so that's where, again, I think we're going to see uh, we're now due for that kind of robust um, discussion about how we fund public education. I think that's going to uh, be coming to a, to a head in the next session. There are a number of um, other issues, ethics reform, um, shining a brighter light on lawmakers. And Greg Abbott, uh, the governor, um, uh, wanted that last session, the Senate, Pass some good legislation. The Texas House blew it up, um, uh, yeah, so that citizens can have more confidence there isn't corruption in the um, in the political uh, you know, from the politicians that people aren't profiting off the of public service. So I think those are some of the, the highlights of uh, the next session. Michael, we definitely appreciate you taking the time and uh, joining us this week on the Weekly Brew podcast. And for those that are interested in you know following your work and kind of what you do, where can they find you on social media? I would love to uh, follow you can follow me on Twitter at MQ Sullivan. MQ Sullivan. Um, our organization is at Empower Texans on Twitter. Both myself and the organization, all of our staff are on Facebook and Instagram and all those sorts of places. You can go to EmpowerTexans.com and find all of that. Michael, we appreciate you taking the time and joining us this week. Hey, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Closing time. Right, definitely a fun episode. I think this is uh, probably interesting. I think for me with Jonathan Fagan, I've never heard somebody so animated when responding to some of our questions, but I thought he was definitely a fascinating interview. Also, thank you to uh, Michael Sullivan for joining us and talking both national politics and local politics here in the state of Texas. But uh, guys... What did you think of this week's episode? Well, regarding Jonathan Fagan, I've never uh, felt so dumb after answering or asking a question of him than I did after he answered my question. So, uh, fair point. Uh, I guess, you know, the Rockets aren't trying to audition to have their jobs taken. I probably could have phrased it a little bit better. So, thanks for making me better, Fagan. I, uh, I definitely enjoyed that interview a lot, and I certainly need to set my game up a little bit. And uh, as regards Sullivan, I'd just like to say on the record that I don't uh, support any of his policies or beliefs. Uh, we are a very multifaceted podcast here. We have all kinds of different political beliefs. So that was not an endorsement uh, of him on my part, at least. But I do appreciate him taking the time and attempting to explain uh, conservative values to me, which I don't think uh, I don't think I ended up appreciating them at the end uh, like he would have liked, certainly. But still appreciate him taking the time out to talk to us. He did ask an interesting question, which was, you know, uh, about those conservative principles. And, you know, one of the ways that I would have maybe framed it is, you know, a lot of those questions are, uh, you know, I, I think a lot of conservatives want the want less government. They don't want the government to be involved in their lives. And I, I think if you would have framed it uh, potentially that way about like you know, legislating morality, I think that that could have been a, an interesting take. But yeah, I, 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 I thought it was an interesting conversation. Um, I definitely appreciate him joining the podcast uh, and, uh, you know, giving us you know, his take, I, I, I thought he had some interesting uh, responses to some of the questions that were asked, but um, Jeremy, what were your thoughts? Oh, I loved it. Um, of course, uh, being on the other side of the political spectrum from Kevin, um, I, I find myself agreeing with Michael Quinn Sullivan uh, more often than not. Um, I, I think he had a lot of, uh, he articulated a lot of positions that um, I think are, are certainly important for uh, conservatives and Republicans. I think he also sort of asked the bigger question of like, what does it mean to be a conservative? And uh, certainly I, I loved his response uh, to when, with that question about um, he did answer the question about legislating morality and that all laws have a moral nature to them. Um, but I, I, I loved his, his interview here and uh, I loved and I just want to thank you for taking the time out to do the interview with us.
I'm really proud of myself because I didn't uh, lapse into any rhetoric. I didn't call anyone an idiot or I think I was actually very fair and balanced uh, to borrow a term from Fox News in my questioning. So uh, once again, I end the episode very proud of myself and the work that I do. It was definitely an interesting conversation with Michael Sullivan. And um, I, I definitely could tell that, uh, you know, both Jeremy and Kevin had different perspectives, obviously. Uh, but one of the things that I wish I would have asked him was a tweet that he sent out on April 22nd that said, in honor of Earth Day, I'm going to leave my truck's engine running all day. As somebody who works in an oil and gas company, uh, you know, oil and gas company Companies, they do actually care about the environment, despite what some people think. Uh, you know, they, they 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 want to be good stewards of the environment, and you know, to maximize uh, you know the the life cycle essentially of the resources that we do have. Uh, but I don't know. I think that's just a dumb tweet by Michael Sullivan, and I wish we could have asked him about that. I just think it's intentionally provocative, and it's the sort of rhetoric that gets people into trouble because it doesn't really contribute anything to the discussion. If anything, it's preaching to the choir, which you can tell by how much Jeremy loved that tweet. Um, so it's just it's it's one other facet of what is um, divisive and, and uh, uh, unproductive about political discussions these days. And, and I wish we'd asked him about it too, but I was trying to be polite, which I think I did a pretty good job of. So, but yeah, it's not not the sort of ideal rhetoric I would want from somebody that is uh, considered the most powerful figure in politics uh, in an unelected position. Well, you have to remember, guys, I and mean, that's part of what he does. But uh, I certainly, I I completely endorse the tweet because it's a joke, obviously being Earth Day. But yeah, I I thought it was hilarious. And, you know, in, in, in that situation, Jeremy, if you did like his tweet, you would, you know, favorite or retweet it. And we kind of asked the same of our listeners. You know, if you like an episode, we want you to go to iTunes, give us a five star review. Tell us what you like about the episode. Give us show ideas. And uh, Kevin, I was actually talking to a coworker this past week who uh, said that he was listening to some of our past episodes. And he said that he really liked the good cop, bad cop routine when it came to iTunes reviews. And again, this week, we have no iTunes reviews. Is that correct? That is correct, and it is unfortunate as well. But we do have people sharing our content, which is um, in its own way beneficial and great. So obviously, you know, it's difficult for a young show to grow and build. And anybody who does share our stuff on Facebook or on Twitter, we uh, certainly appreciate you for that. Um, but we don't appreciate you nearly as much as we would if you got on iTunes and gave us a review. So uh, if you listen to some of our older content, you should because there's fantastic stuff in there. You will hear me reading out some of the older reviews. Every time you leave a review on iTunes for us that's five stars and has a little blurb, I will shout you out on the air by name and read it to the thousands of people that listen to us. Um, so there's a little bit of a... I feel like it's a, a bit of a carrot, and I'm trying to do the carrot more than the stick, but I'm certainly happy to do the stick as well if necessary. Maybe our audience is shy. Maybe they don't want their names read in front of thousands of people. But uh, overall, uh, we definitely want you to go to iTunes and, as Kevin said, give us a review. Also, if you want to follow our work online, you can go search Weekly Brewcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. You can also find our work at weeklybrewcast.com. But again, we had a, a fun episode today, and... And we thank uh, Jonathan Fagan for joining us. Also, Michael Quinn Sullivan for joining us on the podcast. And Dolores Lozano was unable to join us for this week's intro and outro session. But uh, credit to her for scoring the Jonathan Fagan interview. I think she uh, did a great job with that. And uh, Jeremy, thanks for uh, arranging the interview with Michael Sullivan there. Guys, I definitely enjoyed this week's episode. It's always great to sit back, chat with you guys. But uh, we hope everyone listening at home, on the road, at the gym, at work, wherever you may be, that you also enjoyed this week's episode of the Weekly Group Podcast. Podcast. And for my co-host, Kevin Cook, Jeremy Paxson, and Dolores Lozano, my name is Austin Staten. We'll see you next week. And guys, remember, no matter where you go, who you are, or what you do, always, always brew responsibly. You've been listening to The Weekly Brew. 